morning, everyone. My name's Eric. I'm one of the elders here. I'd like to welcome you. Um, somebody had just told me, I guess there was a, a, a bulletin that just came out that a plane went down in Nigeria, 150 people. Yeah, so something to keep in your thoughts and prayers. I hate to start like that, but just popped up. Anyway, um, Mr. Megorium, is, it, is that how you pronounce it? Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium. That's a kid's movie, so uh, just to let you know, and um, I think the rest of them are kind of a little different. But anyway, uh, a few announcements that I have. The gospel class will start June 27th, which is a Wednesday night. And uh, we need you to sign up for that if you have kids because we want to be able to plan the child care. So if you want to go to the gospel class, which I would highly recommend if you've never been to it or if you're thinking about Element for your um, home church, it's a prerequisite to membership and it'll uh, give you a good foundation in terms of what we believe and, and basic doctrine. So that's, uh, you can sign up in the back. It's June 27th once again. And um, there's, there's a lady who came, has come to our church. She wants to come to our church, but she needs a ride. She lives in Tanglewood, and she's willing to pay for gas. And it really doesn't matter which service. So if anybody uh, feels led to pick her up, give her a ride, she's willing to help with gas. And uh, talk to Mikey in the back, and he can connect you guys. Also, I want to remind everybody that uh, it's time to vote on Tuesday. So we don't tell you how to vote, but we want to encourage you to vote. And lastly, let's see, my last one is, I want to say happy birthday to Mikey in the back. Yeah. <laughs> How old are you again? No, just kidding. Yeah. So um, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. We have uh, notes, sermon notes on all of the communion tables. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion. You can click on the live button and you can pull up the notes by GPS. So we are continuing our study in the book of Genesis. With that, please stand for the reading of God's word. First service, we had a sound disaster, and I'm hoping <clears throat> everything goes smooth this time. This is Psalms chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, and it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us so that we could know you. We could know your character and your power and it, so that we can see ourselves in the reality of who we are. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us. And this morning, we pray that you would speak to us through your words, that we would uh, have a better, more clear understanding of uh, what you've done for us, Lord, and and um, what you plan to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> so uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Genesis, which is the book of origins. It's the book of beginnings. And in the first 11 chapters in particular, we have this critical revelation of the origin of all things that constitute a full worldview. There's the universe and its origin. There's the origin of time action, space, matter, the origin of the solar system and the atmosphere and the hydrosphere. There's the origin of all life. We see the origin of mankind, the origin of marriage and the origin of the family. There's the origin of sin and guilt, redemption and forgiveness. There's the origin of culture and civilization. You see animal husbandry and you see metallurgy and all other enterprises. There's the origin of poetry and the origin of music. 
And today we're going to be looking at the origin of languages and the origin of nations. So we're going to be in chapter, chapter 10 and chapter 11. Now, today we're going to get kind of into a quasi-genealogy. Uh, and today genealogies are very popular. You can go to the Internet and there's a number of websites where you can trace your family history. Can anybody think of one off the top of their head? Ancestry.com, probably one of the most notable. Has anybody ever done that? Anybody here? Nobody? Somebody in first service actually did. I mean, many people are compelled to find out more about their origins, from the child who was adopted, who wants to find out about their birth parents, to those who just want to go back into their family tree and to find out what their heritage really is. Has anybody ever seen that NBC show, Who Do You Think You Are? Okay, that's where it traces celebrities through a journey of self-discovery. They go back through their family tree to find out where they came from and, and more about who they really are. Well, I've done a lot of homework this past week, and I've looked into each one of your heritage files. And guess what? You're all descended from the line of Noah. You can all say that your family survived the great flood. Now, we saw back in Genesis in chapter 9, verses 18 and 19, it said that Noah had... Um, sons who came out of the ark, and their names were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in verse 19, it says that these three sons, these, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the peoples of the whole earth were dispersed. So in Genesis chapter 10, now in verse 1, it says this, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So here in Genesis 10, we follow the line of human history through these three sons. And so you have here with Noah and his three sons the second starting point for human history. Now, Noah is obviously a critically important person here. The next significant person that we're going to see is Abraham, and we get to him at the end of chapter 11. And between Noah and Abraham, we have this genealogical record which includes the sons of Japheth, the sons of Ham, but most particularly the sons of Shem because Abraham comes from the line of Shem. And from Abraham come the Jewish race, the Hebrews, the people of Israel, God's chosen missionary nation, and through whom God had sent Jesus, the conqueror of Satan's sin and death and the Savior of the world. Now, Martin Luther wrote this about what's called the Table of Nations in chapter 10. He says, Whenever I read these names, I think of the wretched state of the human race. Even though we have the most excellent gift of reason, we are nevertheless so overwhelmed by misfortunes that we are ignorant not only of our own origin and the lineal descent of our ancestors, but even of God himself, our creator. Look into the historical accounts of all nations. If it were not for Moses alone, what would you know about the origin of man? Therefore, we have reason to regard the Holy Bible highly and to consider it a most precious treasure. This very chapter, even though it is considered full of dead words, has in it the thread that is drawn from the first world to the middle and to the end of all things. From Adam, the promise concerning Christ has passed on to Seth, from Seth to Noah, from Noah to Shem, and from Shem to this Eber, from whom the Hebrew nation receives its name, as the heir from whom the promise about the Christ was intended in preference to all other peoples of the whole world." This knowledge the Holy Scriptures reveal to us. Those who are without them live in error, uncertainty, and boundless ungodliness, for they have no knowledge about who they are and whence they came. Now, rather than me going through the entire chapter and mispronouncing all of the names and, and reading all of the sons and then at the end being totally confused about what it looks like, I kind of mapped it out and drew a picture, but unfortunately it didn't translate very well. 
Can, can, can you guys see that? Basically, this shows you the table of nations, and it shows the, the various lines. So if you were able to see it, you would see that Japheth had seven sons, and his descendants went into areas of Germany. They were the Celts and, and the Saxons, Scandinavians, Armenians, Carpathians, Greeks from the coastlands. They went into Spain and, and uh, Cyprus, Moscow. And then Ham, he had four sons. And uh, he had Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And they went into areas of Ethiopia and Arabia. And, and uh, from there came various people groups, especially from his son Canaan. We, we heard a little bit about him last week. But from Canaan came many of the people groups that ended with Ait, like the Hivites and the Amorites and the Gerishites and the Hivites and the Archites and the Sinites. All of those Ites were, who were a thorn in Israel's side throughout their history. But then over on the right, I, I kind of highlighted there the line of Shem. And in particular, the line that goes through Peleg. Shem had five sons. And the one that's uh, most critical here is Arpachshad, who had she- Shelah, Eber, where the name Hebrew came from, and Peleg, who lived and who was born approximately 100 years after the flood. And that's the line of Abraham through which Christ came. So... This table of nations, it's meant to represent the totality of the human race at the time, even though it's not a complete list, and it's not intended to be a complete list. It's a selective list chosen to be precisely 70, which is in no way an accident. 70 stands for totality, stands for completion, and it would have served as a literary tool uh, for the oral tradition to be able to pass that along. And 70 was used in rabbinic literature where 70 peoples or 70 languages express humanity in its entirety. This table, it affirms the common origin and the unity of humankind after the flood despite their various distinctions and divisions. So one purpose here of chapter 10 is to show the continuation of God's blessing. People continue to be fruitful and they're multiplying and they're filling the earth. And this list offers us a picture of the world and of those nations that were pertinent to Israel. And so the point here is that all of the known peoples and the nations resulted from the blessing that God had established from the very beginning. In national ethnic diversity, it was not a defect in humanity. There's no room for this concept that there was one pure race and somehow all the others were tainted by sin and corruption. What we see here is that in spite of man's continuing rebelliousness and sin, God is faithful to his covenant and promise to bless man. And in light of what happens in uh, the story of Babel in chapter 11, we see here in chapter 10 that God's purpose and plan will not be thwarted by man. It will not be thwarted by man. It's because of God's covenant, because of his promise that he doesn't completely destroy man again. And as we'll see, his judgment on Babel, it's actually an act of grace. It's an act of grace so that man would not completely destroy themselves. And so what happens then, nations develop of which God will choose one. He chooses Israel that he will reveal himself to. And through them, he'll bless all of the other nations of the world. Now, in the middle of this flow of families, in the middle of chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, there's this little interlude that I want to focus on because it's important. And we're introduced to this guy named Nimrod. And it's important because this is the first time in the Bible that the word kingdom 
is actually used. There's never been a kingdom before, and the beginning of the kingdom here was Babel. He was the first world king. This is the first world empire. And in verse 8 of chapter 10, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So, in other words, if you wanted to say somebody was really powerful, you would say, he's like Nimrod, or He's a Nimrod. Now, when I was a kid, calling somebody a Nimrod had a totally different meaning because it sounded like male genitalia. We used it in in a derogatory way, right? But Nimrod was a prototypical power mogul. You know, I don't know if you would consider someone like Donald Trump like that, but on a much larger scale. Therefore, instead of Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, even the Lord noticed his tremendous his tremendous power here. And in verse 10 of chapter 10, it says, The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalne, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Calais, and Rezin between Nineveh and Calais. This, that is the great city. So here we are introduced to Babel in the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. Now, he was the first great world king, built the first great world empire. And as we'll see in just a minute, this world empire called Babel was an idolatrous and wicked um, empire. Nimrod's name actually means uh, rebel in the Hebrew. Now, a better way to translate that um, would be uh, instead of mighty hunter, it doesn't mean he was just a, a hunter of animals. He was really a killer of men. So a better way to translate that would be he was a mighty soldier or a mighty warrior. And so this grandson of um, Noah, this great, his grandson of Ham, wielded deadly power, and he ruled ruthlessly. And no doubt he conquered all kinds of people and consolidated families and people groups into this, into this great Babel. And so that brings us to chapter 11, verse 1. And it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now, if you go through and you read chapter 10, you'll see in verses 5, 20, 31, that there were already divisions of clans and lands and nations and languages. This is not a contradiction in the scripture. It was common in ancient writings for the author to describe events outside of chronological order, to either draw a distinction or to serve the purpose of the author. And so here, Moses, he's actually moving back in time. And in verse 32 of chapter 10, it says, These are the clans and the sons of no- uh, the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abo- abroad on the earth after the flood. So what Moses is doing, he's setting the stage here for the story of Babel that's about to follow. What he just described in chapter 10 uh, geographically and linguistically, now in chapter 11 he's going to describe theologically. He's going to tell us why and how God judged Babel and how he dispersed the nations. And so in chapter 10, verse 25, it says that two sons were born to Eber. Again, that's where we get the name Hebrew. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. So this happened in the time of Peleg. And if you trace his genealogy at the end of chapter 11, you can see that Peleg was born about 100 years after the flood. So this is not a lot of time. In 100 years, the earth's population was still one clan, one tribe, one language, one nation, one family, but they were already hopelessly sunk into idolatry and sin. And so Noah's son Shem, who had witnessed the flood, who actually came off of the ark, he was still alive at this time. And in a hundred years, the earth has gone away from God again. Now, it's important to note here that there, there are no names mentioned in this Babel story. The event's not actually pinned on Nimrod or anybody else. 
Reference to the whole earth indicates the global condition of the people at the time. They all had the same language. They had the same words, which, which basically means they had the same vocabulary. There were no barriers to communication, none at all, no barriers to unity. The literal Hebrew here is that they had one lip and one set of words. In verse 2, it says, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, we see a pattern in Genesis of man moving eastward, away from good and away from the blessing that God originally created for him. And they try to find good and blessing on their own. Adam and Eve, when they were driven from the garden, they were made to settle east of Eden. Cain, when he was cast out of the presence of God, he dwelt in the land east of Eden. And so going eastward then is always contrasted with God's way of blessing here in Genesis. They leave the land of blessing like Eden or the promised land, and they end up looking for their greatest hopes only to find ruin in like Babel or, or Sodom. And so they end up settling here in this plain or this flatland, this lowland called Shinar, which is in southern Mesopotamia, and it's associated with Babel or Babylon. This would be modern-day Iraq. And so verse 3, it says, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, these are not um, common building materials like stone or mud brick that you would typically find in Palestine. This description actually highlights the ingenuity of the people created in the image of God. They developed advanced construction techniques and materials by molding and by firing clay. And the use of bitumen, which was like a pitch tar or uh, an asphalt, made this an expensive endeavor. And so the result was waterproof buildings that were actually as sturdy as stone, and they would last a long time. So only the most important buildings would be built like this. So they were highly creative. They were resourceful but how would they use their God-given talents? Verse 4 says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this was most likely during the early stages of urbanization in Mesopotamia. And during that time, they they wouldn't build a city for people to actually live in. The city would be uh, a place where they would have buildings for public use, like administration or granaries, or um, they would most likely be connected with a temple, a place of worship. So in effect, this city was a temple complex. They're building a temple complex. And a tower with its top in the heavens would have been the most prominent building in this temple complex. And in Mesopotamian cities, these are called ziggurats. Has anybody ever heard of a ziggurat? Yeah? Okay. Um, Most interpreters identify the Tower of Babel as a ziggurat. Now, whenever the expression is used with its head in the heavens and it's used in Mesopotamian literature to describe a building, it was almost always a ziggurat with a temple around it. So I have some pictures to show you what a ziggurat looks like. It was meant to resemble a mountain. It kind of looked like a pyramid, but it functioned nothing like a pyramid because it was, it was really, there was nothing inside of it. It was just structure on the outside framed in mud brick, then it was filled and packed with dirt. And then on the outside, it was completed with kiln-fired brick. And they ranged anywhere in size from 60 feet to 200 feet per side. And these ziggurats would be dedicated to particular deities. And they may have had several of them de- dedicated to them in different cities. And the main feature was a stairway or a ramp 
that led to the top where there was a small room and a bed and a table set for the deity at the very top. This next picture, you can see this picture was taken in 2010. These are U.S. soldiers actually climbing that stairway. This is a ziggurat of Ur in um, Iraq. Now, the function of the ziggurat was most important. The building didn't really actually play any part in the rituals that we're aware of. As far as we know, they weren't actually used for anything. It was strictly sacred space. It was off limits to any profane use. And though the room had a top, uh, had a room at, uh, though it had a room at the top to accommodate the god, it wasn't actually the temple. The temple would have been built right next to the ziggurat, and that's where the people would go to worship. So the main function then of this ziggurat was to serve as a pathway, or as a stairway where the gods could travel back and forth between earth and heaven. And it was built solely for the convenience of the gods and was maintained to provide them with the amenities to refresh them along their journey. So what's actually happening here at this Tower of Babel project is that the people are building a temple complex featuring this ziggurat designed to make it convenient for the gods to go up and down and to come down to the temple, receive worship from the people so that he can, they can bless, be blessed. So now I know... In this story, the most common interpretation of the offense committed by the Tower of Babel builders was pride and disobedience. Pride is seen here in the fact that they wanted to make a name for themselves. Maybe this means that they wanted to glorify themselves as opposed to glorifying God. And that could be true, but the text doesn't clearly indicate that that's the issue. Wanting to make a name for yourself, that could be motivated by sinful behavior. But it can also be legitimately pursued. In the Old Testament and in the ancient world, one can make a name for themselves by establishing something that would actually outlive them, like famous exploits or, or building an enduring monument. It's natural human desire to want to leave your mark and be remembered after one's death. That's part of the attractiveness of God's offer to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he says he's going to make a name for him. So making a name may be driven by pride, but it doesn't have to be. The second thing was disobedience, and that's seen in light of God's words to Noah, that, where he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They said they were afraid of being dispersed over the face of the earth, and so instead they, they were disobedient. They started building this city so that they didn't have to scatter. Now, there are some problems with this because God is actually pronouncing a blessing in chapter 9 as opposed to giving a command. So in Genesis 9-1, it actually says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this could be seen as a privilege rather than an obligation and therefore not disobeyed. And lastly, the, the means that God supplied for filling the earth, it was by reproducing, not by scattering. How is the earth any fuller when people spread out? So the only way it could really be disobeyed would be by refusing to be fruitful and multiply. And it's clear here in the text that they were doing quite well in that regard. It's been approximately 100 years since the flood, and the population is estimated to be around 30,000 people at the time. So why then? Why are they afraid to scatter? I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing not to want to be scattered. How many of you have family members outside of the state or outside of the country, other parts of the world? I mean, it's normal for families not to want to be torn apart. So what's forcing them to scatter then if, God's, if it's not God's command? Most likely, it's survival. They have to spread out because of survival. 
as the number of people grew, the only way that they could survive was to scatter, to find additional resources or build a city that prevents the need to scatter. Cities are built on cooperative living. It allows more people to inhabit a smaller area without having to compete for resources. I mean, think, of, think about how many people live per square mile in New York City or San Francisco or Tokyo compared to a more rural city of the same size. It allows you to stay together in a denser population. So what's the offense here then? If it's not pride, if it's not disobedience, why does God stop this project and force them to scatter? It's not because he doesn't want them to be together. I mean, do you think God has something against cities? No, the scripture tells us no. God chooses for his name to dwell in a city, Jerusalem. It's because of this towering ziggurat and what it represents that God has to take action to stop this project. It's because the people's concept of God has been so severely degraded that society as a whole was about to pass the point of no return. This ziggurat, which was the most powerful representation of the Babylonian religious system, a system in which the gods were recast with human natures, people began to envision deity in human terms at that point. They were no longer trying to be like God, but more insidiously, they were trying to bring God down to the level of fallen humanity. How does God respond? Ironically, he comes down, but he's displeased. And we see in verse 5 here, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. So these builders, they, they construct a ziggurat so that the deity will come down into their midst. And indeed, Yahweh does come down. And he sees this as the first step with inevitable results. They're about to pass that point of no return. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they, do, that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. They're united. They're united in this project that will lead to the total corruption once again, and any inhibitions that would have prevented them from doing it have been overcome. The power of evil, it's greater when it's concentrated. It's greater when there are no restraints, when it's unhindered, when there's no checks and there's no balances. And so God takes action here to stop the project and to prevent their united evil from totally corrupting the whole population. And in verse 7, God says, and notice the, the Trinitarian language here. In verse 7, he says, they say, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off, the building, they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Like the horrific reality of the flood, this event is not in the Bible coloring book. It must have been a, an extremely traumatic event. I mean, imagine the fear. Imagine the chaos. I mean, you, you had mobs of people that all of a sudden just couldn't, couldn't, inter, couldn't interact, couldn't communicate, couldn't talk to one another. God judges them by making it impossible for them to ever be united in this evil again. He not only divides their language, but in doing so, he divides one people into many peoples. He multiplies languages and peoples. Why doesn't he just wipe them out like he did in the days of Noah? It's because of his promise, because of his covenant. His judgment here, it's actually an act of grace once again. 
So God, he's built into the world this system where the interest and the agendas of one people group is put against the interest and the agenda of, of another people group so that they keep one another in check. You know, because God knows the immense potential of human beings that were created in his very own image. And he's given, he's given us amazing liberties, even though we choose to live our lives without trusting him. But there are limits. There are limits. And thousands of languages around the world, thousands of different peoples help keep wayward mankind in check. So up to this point in Genesis, Moses, he's tracing the advance of sin from the initial disobedience from Adam and Eve. We see uh, family violence, repression in society to the total corruption that led to the flood. And then we see this constant movement away from God and the corruption of human conduct. But the Tower of Babel builders... They go even further. They take it to the next level. Not only is humanity corrupted, but their view of God is now distorted and it's twisted beyond recognition. Beyond being morally and socially destitute, they've gone down a road that will make them theologically destitute. They've lost any realistic sense of who God is. The Tower of Babel story, it relates the advance of paganism and their attempt to institutionalize it. That's actually what's happening here idolatry, polytheism, animism, all trademarks of the Babylonian religious system, and it all got its start here at Babel. The Bible actually traces all false religion back to Babylon. From Babylon, you can trace it back to Babel. They rejected the true God. They developed their own gods. And then the Babylonian mystery occult came out of that. They spread all over the world. And this became the heritage of all of Israel's neighbors. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul described in Romans chapter 1. In verse 21, he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their, under, in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creator. The, cre the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. <clears throat> so, at the core then is paganism. And the core of paganism is the belief that gods have needs. And their aim of their worship was to meet those needs. They needed to be fed and clothed and housed. They were pampered and patronized and manipulated. The heart of paganism, it's not in the perversity of the rituals. It's in the degradation of the deity. It's in degradation of deity. They distinguish their gods by their perceived power rather than by the character and the transcendence and the autonomy of the only true God. Their gods were like these volatile puppets that were filled with nitroglycerin. Make them do whatever you want, however you can, but be careful. Don't jar them too much or they might explode. Later, when God revealed himself to Israel... He makes his expectations and he makes his character very clear in Psalms 50, verses 7 through 15. The Lord makes it clear he has no needs. He says the cattle on a thousand hills and every other created thing belong to him. He cannot be manipulated. We all, each one of us, has this seed of paganism within us that shows when we view God as limited, when we try to get him to respond to us on our terms, or when we view him as needing our abilities, or when we try to make him do what we want him to do, when we want him to do it. 
By nature, we're all pagans caught in this Babel syndrome. We think that we can manipulate God by praying in Jesus' name to achieve our selfish desires or when we claim promises to try to make God do what we want him to do. Our paganism is showing. When we think that God needs us because of the money we give or the talents that we have or the ministry that we do, our paganism is showing. What we really want is this manageable God light, if you will. We want to harness his power but no strings attached. Our society has dealt with child abuse and and spouse abuse. This is God abuse. It's God abuse. This Babel syndrome can be seen today in the preaching that God can be bought. Send your money to their ministry and claim limitless prosperity as a divine payout. My first job after uh, after becoming a Christian many, many years ago was working for a quote-unquote faith healer named Peter Popoff. Anybody hear of Peter Popoff? He was making $4 million a month prior to being exposed as a fraud in 1987. And after that, he went bankrupt and he kind of disappeared. But then he came back years later. And you know what? Today you can still find him on the BET network. And he's still selling that miracle spring water that's guaranteed to save your children, heal your body, make you prosperous, get you out of debt. And I can't believe people are still sending him money. Why would they do that? Because the Babel syndrome still lives in the heart of man today. When we rail at God for all the suffering in the world and then we turn away from him angrily at the death of a loved one, it just shows that our view of God is seriously deficient. These are all legacy of Babel. In the movie The Matrix, the gods are cast in this role of computers and they're controlling the world with an iron fist and the people are, are kept alive in a comatose state and they feed them through impulses to their brain, making them think that they're living normal lives. But they're only being kept alive so that these machines can feed on them for their sustenance. And whether we realize it or not, some people actually view God this way. They want to be able to control him and to manipulate him. But this can only work if he has needs to be met or to be withheld. And rather than accepting the true nature and character of God as he's revealed to us in Scripture, we want something that's more like Aladdin's lamp and Aladdin's genie in the lamp. You know, phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. That's what we think about. Genesis chapter 11, it describes the problem, but it doesn't necessarily explain how to fix it. But there are biblical strategies to help us maintain an accurate, industrial strength view of God. And the bottom line is, we need to let God be God. We've got to let God be God. And we can only do this if we know the ways that we dilute God in our own understanding. We dilute God in our own understanding whenever we redistribute His power to the point where we rely on something other than the Lord. Whenever we rely on anything but Him, we are diluting our understanding of Him. In the ancient world, they would rely on Baal for their crops or strategic alliances or political alliances for security. People rely on whatever they think has power. The church in past history, they distributed God's power to the saints and to Mary. In the New Age movement, they distribute divine power to angels or multiple religions where Buddha or Allah share power with Christ. Mostly in the church today, we're guilty of diluting God by distributing his power to the human realm. Are we relying on ourselves, our hard work, our ingenuity, our our network? You see, relying on God means that we need to take risk by not hedging our bets. How would our lives look different if we let God be God? If we didn't drain off his power? 
Would we take more obedient risk? Would we take steps of faith outside of our comfort zone? Would we serve in mission? Would we use our talents to serve in the church? Or would we raise our giving despite that we might have to give up some indulgences? Or would we take a stand for godliness at work or, or at school? We can't forget Psalms 37.5 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. We delude God in our understanding whenever we restrict His autonomy by believing that some way He's ob- obligated to us. In meeting, attempting to meet uh, the God's needs, people believe that God would actually be obligated to them. And any time we view God as being in, uh, obligated to us, then His autonomy, His freedom in our lives is limited. And if we think that God owes us anything because of the money we give or the service we do or the prayers that we say, we are guilty of diluting God. We have to recognize that there's nothing we can do that would put God into our debt. It's not even a small payback for the incalculable debt that we owe him. God freely and genuinely says to each one of us, I love you, but he never says, I need you. Or he never says, I can't do it without you. God has no need of anything that's created. A populated world, an empty world, they all add the same thing to him. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We love God because we need him. We can't make the mistake that he loves us for the same reason. And finally, we dilute God in our understanding whenever we regulate his power by trying to redirect it for our own purpose, our own benefit. God's power is an awesome, awesome thing. And we are called to be channels of that power working through us and in us to carry out his plans. And, you know, we're overjoyed when God's power works wonders in our lives. But how reluctant are we to have him purify us and cleanse us? Heal my body, Lord, but don't try to make demands on my attitude. You know, give me that job or give me that promotion, God, but don't try to change my habits. That's going too far. In effect, we say, God, work your changes for me, not in me. So what's God's solution? How do we protect ourselves from adopting this diluted view of God? The only way is to constantly get a renewed vision of his sovereignty, his transcendence, his power. We need to be in the scriptures regularly, finding out who God really is and what he is really like. We shouldn't look to the Bible for this mystical thought of the day or treat it like a newspaper horoscope to find out what I should or or shouldn't do today. Much of our spiritual growth depends on developing an informed understanding of who God really is and then bringing more and more of our lives into orbit around him as the center of our universe. Those two things have to go hand in hand. You can have somebody with a sophisticated understanding of God who refuses to orient their life towards God. And then you can have another person who has a strong commitment to put God at the center of their life, but they suffer from a deficient or a distorted view of who God really is. And so reading and studying God's word, it's essential for us to become informed about God. But then surrendering our wills is essential for us to maintain in a relationship with him as the center of our universe. The paganism in each one of us, it drives us to be self-absorbed. God's revelation and his spirit draws us to himself. And we only need to yield and let God be God. Let God be God. The band's going to come back up. Revelation 
chapter 5, verse 9, it says this. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We saw how it started, but let's not forget how it ends. Jesus, by his blood, has ransomed us, has cleansed us and purified us, and he is going to bring back together all peoples from every language group, every tribe, every nation, from all corners of the earth, and with one voice we will be able to proclaim, Worthy are you, God, to receive blessing and glory and honor and might. That's what the end looks like. So let's praise him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for revealing yourself to us so that we could know you, we could know your character, your, your awesome power, who you are, so that we could live lives, Lord, that glorify and honor you, so that we may know how to live, Lord, in this world. We thank you for your power that works in our lives. Father, I pray if there is, is any here that is relying on anything other than you, Lord, that you would reveal that to them and that they would change that today. Father, as we worship you through song, as we worship you in our giving, through our fellowship, Father, I pray that you would draw each one of us close to you. If you're relying on anything else other than the Lord this morning, there's people in the back that want to pray with you and they want to, they want to help you in that way. Go and talk to them. Go and pray with them. Amen.